0: I hope you'll take your Bibles and open to Mark chapter 14. Mark 14. As you turn there, I'll give you the word for the day. You've already said it and heard it a lot. It's a word I think brings together everything we're going to see in our passage this morning. And I hope that if you leave, you'll have it stuck in your mind. The word is steadfast, a word you probably know, probably could define, and I probably could have put together a definition myself, but I went to Webster's to see what he said about it, gave a three-fold definition, firmly fixed in place, not subject to change, firm in belief, determination, and adherence. That was helpful. What I found more helpful were the synonyms. What are synonyms of steadfast or steadfastness? Unwavering, unfaltering, unswerving, committed, dedicated, and maybe my favorite, resolute. That's what it means to be steadfast. and It's a word I found myself returning to over and over as we've been going through the last few chapters of the Gospel of Mark. We've been following Jesus and we know that he knows that every step is taking him closer to his death. And not just any death, but death on a cross, a a death combined with incredible suffering, a death reserved for the worst of criminals, and yet a death he didn't deserve. A death that he would submit to for the sake of sinners. A death in which he would endure not only physical suffering, because lots of people died on crosses. thought about that in history? Many, many, many people died on crosses. That's not unique to Jesus. What was unique to Christ is that through his death, he took on the wrath of God for the sins of all who would believe. And as we come to Mark 14... In fact, all the way through the Gospel of Mark, he has known that it's coming. And he doesn't hide, he doesn't run. No, he walks toward it. He knows why he's come, and he doesn't waver. He doesn't falter, he doesn't swerve. He's committed, dedicated, resolute, steadfast. As we've gone through the Gospel of Mark, we've seen Jesus on this steadfast path, but maybe as we've gone, maybe you've thought, he's God. Of course he's committed. Of course he's resolute. But this morning we come to a point in the Gospel where we are reminded of the difficulty that Jesus faced on that journey. See, the cross was a real and true test of his steadfastness. It's a place where we can see the depth of his resolve. And we see it not only in what Jesus does, but we see it in contrast to those around him. See, Jesus moves towards the cross, and he's steadfast, he's determined, he's unswerving. Yet, the disciples, well, they're confident in the way they talk. But they're easily shaken when things get hard. And we're going to see both these things this morning. The steadfastness of Christ even in the hardest of moments. And the weak and wavering faith of the disciples. When the pressure's on, they aren't as bold as they claim they will be. Those are the two things. I will tell you my primary hope for you this morning for us that you will be amazed and encouraged by the steadfastness of Christ. It should help us, shouldn't it, to, to recognize that God is unswerving in what he does? That he makes promises and he keeps promises and that the work he begins, he will always finish? He's not like us, is he? We tend to cower, to shrink, to give up. We're plagued, you and me, by weakness. Not Christ. Ever steadfast. There's a sense in which this passage, I think we see the weakness of the disciples and we should be called to greater steadfastness ourselves. It's right for us to hear God calling us to more committed allegiance but I'll say it over and over what I want you to see more than anything because I think it it changes us more is to see Christ to know that all our hope all our confidence regardless of our steadfastness we have hope in him we are weak but he is strong and thankfully we have a God who's never failed in his promise to us he is the steadfast one and We'll see that in Mark 14 in a very real way. We're picking up right where we left off last week, so hopefully you remember where we were. Remember last week we were in that upper room with Jesus and his disciples? It was the last Passover meal and the first Lord's Supper, a meal that went way late into the evening. At the end of the meal, it was tradition to end that meal with singing. What a great tradition, that Passover meal. They're full and then they sing the halal, the Psalm 116, 117, 118. They sing it together. And then the scriptures tell us that Jesus and his the disciples, they leave that room. And they leave the city. And they start walking back toward the Mount of Olives, towards the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's where we pick up the story this morning. So same night, same people, same characters from last week, now changing location. So Mark chapter 14. And we're going to start reading where we ended last week in verse 26. Hear the word of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Galilee. And Peter said to Jesus, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus and his disciples he said to them, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to the three, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping. He said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not be enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. It's true and it's for our benefit. Pray that God would be, have his, his work in us through the reading and preaching of his word. If you think back to last week, in the upper room, that setting, Jesus makes an announcement. He says at that meal that one of them, one of the twelve, will betray him. We know that he was talking about Judas. And by the time we get to this point, although John's not recorded it, by the time we get to this point, Judas has already left the group. He's gone to do what he will. And last week I told you that that announcement about Judas the betrayer revealed two things at least. First, it was a reminder to us about the sovereignty of God that as he sat in that room, he knew what was coming, he knew he'd be betrayed he was fully aware of what was about to happen. Which leads to the second thing. That even though he knew what was coming, he went toward it. He knew what was in Judas' heart, but he didn't try to stop it. He remained steadfast. And while Judas was the worst betrayal, What Jesus also knows is that the other 11 are going to struggle to be faithful as well. Not in the same way, but nevertheless. So again, we see this morning the sovereign knowledge of Christ and an announcement that shows his omniscience and also his steadfastness as he announces that he will be left alone. Alone. Verse 26, we have the end of the Passover meal, the singing of the song, and then Jesus and the 11 head out. As they're walking towards the Mount of Olives, that's when Jesus makes this announcement. Verse 27, you will all fall away. It's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now again, this announcement's different than the one at dinner. He's not announcing 11 more Betrayals in the way that Judas would betray him. That was an outright, deliberate betrayal. This one's different. This one's temporary, not permanent. But Jesus tells his disciples that when the pressure is on, they're going to scatter. It's a bold announcement, and he uses a biblical illustration. He says, he's quoting Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. That's your homework. Read it and then come and explain that prophecy to all of us. It's a really interesting passage of scripture. Zechariah 13, verse 7. But Jesus takes it and applies it to himself, saying, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Of course, in the metaphor, Christ is the shepherd, God is the one doing the striking, the disciples are the ones who scatter. He says, I'm going to be stricken, and when I am, when that happens, you're all going to flee. There's a couple of things in there. First, it's another announcement of his death. He's been very clear about this in in the chapters. He's announcing his death. He's also announcing how the disciples will respond. And let's, let's not forget who he's talking to. These are the ones that we would assume would be the most faithful. The most courageous, the most loyal, and yet he says that all of them are going to abandon him, that he will be left alone. This is something Jesus tells them you will leave me. But what we also see is not only is he announcing his death, there's something that I think it's easy in this passage to move past because. He says that he's going to die and they're going to leave and then we get Peter's response. But tucked in between those two things, I don't even know that I made a bullet point on your notes, but it's significant. Verse 28, but after I am raised, I will go before you to Galilee. What's he doing? Not only has he announced that he's going to die, he is here announcing his resurrection. And not only is he announcing that the disciples will flee, but he's announcing that we're going to be together again. He's he's telling them, you will fall away and and that should not be minimized. But he's saying it's going to be temporary because we're going to be back together in Galilee, reunited sovereignly back in the same place where they began together. So we have this glimmer of confident hope, but first that falling away must happen. And and of course, that's what the disciples hear and latch on to. Peter in particular takes exception. (laughs) Exception. with what Jesus is saying. You can always count on Peter to speak his mind. Remember back in chapter 8, I believe, 8 or 10, when Jesus announced that he was going to suffer and Peter rebuked him? No, that will never happen. Well, now Jesus again announces his death and announces the, the falling away of the disciples and Peter says, even if they all fall away, I will not. He doesn't try to defend his friends. He's not going to go out on a limb for them, but he can speak for himself. I don't care what those guys do. I'm with you to the end. And I have to admit, I like Peter's style. He knows he loves Christ. He's given his life to following Christ. And I don't think there's any doubt in his mind at this moment that he'll be faithful. but he doesn't know his own weakness. And we also see here an incredible pride. Think about who's telling him these things. The one who has over and over announced the future. Jesus stands before him and says, this will happen. And the right response, church, would be humility. How will this happen? And how can I avoid it? But that's not how Peter responds, is it? He responds fully trusting himself, trusting his own courage, trusting his own resolve. I will not. But Jesus knows what's coming. He knows the pressure And he knows that Peter's not as strong as he thinks he is. And he goes on, he speaks very specifically to Peter. He says, Peter, you specifically, you will deny me. In fact, tonight, before morning, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me not just once, not just twice, but three times. It's a clear and specific announcement. And I would say... A warning. Peter, I'm telling you, it will happen. And again, Peter doesn't respond in humility. He doesn't fall down and ask for help or for courage. No. He says emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then everyone else, the other 10, they all said the same. Peter's in total denial, and everyone else joins in. And again, there's a sense in which this feels right, doesn't it? When Jesus says, you're going to fall away, and it seems right to say, no, I won't. I'm with you. I'm with you to the end. But we're forgetting who's speaking and that he always tells the truth. And he's telling them, you're not as strong as you think you are. And you'll know it soon enough, before the night is over, you'll fall away. And of course, that's exactly what happens, and we'll get to that over the next couple of weeks. But this morning, just at this point, consider at least two things. First, I think this should be a reminder to us to hear the warnings of God. As we read the scriptures over and over, we're worried about the deceitfulness of sin, aren't we? We're told that sin can take us and trap us and hold us. And yet, how often do we read the warnings of scriptures and think, nope, I will not. And we dig in our heels and we're determined, like Peter was, I will not. Yet, how should we read the scriptures? Not trusting in our own abilities, but in Humility. Considering the warnings of Christ, we read in Proverbs 16, verse 18 pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. We see the warnings, we hear the cautions, and we think we're stronger than we are. So maybe we don't meet with the church as regularly as we should. Or we don't work hard to invite others into our lives who can hold us accountable. Maybe you allow yourself to indulge in that private sin just a little bit, just every now and then because you think you can keep it under control, completely dismissing the warnings. That sin will take you farther than you want to go. Friends, consider that you may be doing exactly what Peter and all the disciples did failing to hear the clear warning of Christ. This passage is partly about the weakness of the disciples. But going back to where we started, I think on the whole, what we should see here is the steadfastness of Christ. He knows they're going to fall away. He knows the weakness of their faith. He knows he's going to be left alone. And how does Christ respond? He moves forward we keep reading, we see that they go to a place called Gethsemane. Based on other passages of Scripture, we know this is a place that they've been before. It's a remote place near the base of the Mount of Olives. And it's in this setting that Mark helps us see two things really clearly. We see again the weak and wavering faith of the disciples, but most importantly, we see the steadfastness of Christ, even in the light of the most intense struggles. You know the story, I think. They get to the garden and Jesus is determined to go in to pray by himself. He starts by leaving most of the disciples in one place. And then he, Peter, James, and John, that inner circle who's often with them, the three who are with them on the Mount of Transfiguration, they they go a little further. And listen to what Mark says about the demeanor of Christ. It's here that we really see the weight that Jesus is carrying We see it clearly for the first time. He took Peter with him and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Greatly distressed and troubled. And they're strong words, actually. I mean, they're strong in English, but even stronger in the Greek language. And the reason I say that is because these words aren't used or applied anywhere else in the New Testament. Yet here they are. Uniquely to describe the distress of Christ. And notice this, church. Mark's not saying he's a little anxious, a little worried. No. Greatly distressed and troubled. Which I think this is an appropriate place just to remind you of this. When we are greatly distressed and troubled, usually that comes in connection with sin. (laughs) We're not trusting We're sinfully worrying, but Jesus never sinned. This isn't a sinful lack of trust. This isn't a spiral of despair. It's a genuine and pure weight that rests on him. Greatly distressed and troubled. What we know is that Christ is just hours away from accomplishing what he came to accomplish, but it's not an easy task. He's preparing to accept the wrath of God for the sins of the world. And when it comes to things like this, words really aren't sufficient to describe. Mark chose strong words, but they don't even fully convey probably what Christ was feeling. He goes on to tell his disciples in his own words. In verse 34, he says to Peter, James, and John, My soul is very sorrowful, even... To the point of death. I'm so sorrowful, it feels like it could kill me. We've never heard Jesus say anything like this before. And and my guess is that the disciples had never heard anything like this before. Remember, this is the one who told them over and over, fear not. This is the one who calmed the storm, who healed the sick, who comforted others not the one who usually suffered himself. And yet here he is expressing this deep sorrow, a sorrow that he says, I feel like it could kill me. And the question is, why? Why was the weight so heavy? Why was the sorrow so deep? I've already mentioned it in part, but we get a clearer picture as we see the prayer that Jesus prays. We're told he goes a little farther. He fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible... The hour might pass from him. And Jesus said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. You know, the posture we take when we pray usually says a lot. For Jews, it was calm. And their their normal posture for prayer was to stand and to lift their hands. What we're told here is that Jesus goes... And he doesn't kneel, he falls. He fell to the ground. We can picture him most likely face down, crying out to the Father, and we hear his request that the hour would pass from him and that the cup would be removed. What does that mean? Well, again, Jesus knows that he's going to more than death. He uses an Old Testament imagery, in Isaiah specifically, we're we're told that God is the one who has a cup of wrath that will be poured out on those who are deserving. Yet here we ask, have Jesus asking that the cup of God for him would be removed. He's going to die as a substitute, bearing the wrath of God for sinful men. This is what he knew. We saw back in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus knows what's coming and he feels the weight. That's why Mark says he's greatly distressed and troubled, sorrowful even to the point of death. This is more than an execution. Maybe you've read, have you read Fox's book of martyrs? If you haven't, it's worth grabbing. An old book, and it compiles the stories of the fourteen hundreds, fifteen hundreds of those who were killed for the sake of Christ. And there was a lot of it in those days. And if you read those stories, what you'll find often is people marching to their death, singing, quoting scripture. This isn't my notes, but I, I remember something of a guy said, "He's going to be burned." And he says, today a candle will be lit that we hope will, will, will light all the nation." Was Jesus weaker than these? No. He's about to face far more than an execution. He is about to face something that no one else could ever face, endure something that no one else could ever endure, and he knows it. He knows that as he hangs on the cross, he will bear the cup. And in that moment, he will feel forsaken by the Father. Remember his cry on the cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabatini, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is what lies ahead for Christ, and he knows it. It's so awful and so dreadful that he cries out to God and asks, If there is any way, let the hour pass and the cup be removed. And maybe you think at this point, maybe this is the wrong passage for steadfastness. Maybe what we're reading here doesn't sound like steadfastness at all. He's asking for a way out. Let me assure you of this. The prayer shows the weight and the heaviness of what Christ was about to face, but it also shows his steadfastness. It shows us that he is unswerving, he is unwavering in his commitment to fulfill the will of God. Look at that last part of verse 36. He's acknowledged the weight, he's acknowledged the the distress. Yet not what I will, but what you will. This is steadfastness of the highest measure steadfastness unlike any of us could ever imagine, because none of us could understand the burden that he was carrying. The truth is, you and I shrink under much, much less. Yet here's Jesus facing the unimaginable, completely resolute. I will do the will of the Father. The questions of the prayer show the depth of suffering, but Jesus never ceased to be committed to the will of God. If you don't hear anything else this morning, maybe this would be the point just to to hear this. Jesus was steadfast in his commitment to accomplishing the will of God that would lead to your salvation. And that steadfastness can give us confidence that we can trust him no matter what. The passage shouldn't cause us to question the commitment of Christ, quite the opposite. What we see here is the weight of the burden and the weight of the trial, and yet Jesus resolutely, steadfastly says, God, whatever you will, I'll do it. Jesus models steadfast obedience, and yet we also see how quick the disciples were to shrink. Just before Jesus went off to pray by himself, he tells Peter, James, and John, Remain and watch. Verse 34, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Here's what you should do. Remain and watch. What does that mean? What's he asking them to do? And I think for a long time, I thought he was telling them, Hey, Judas is coming. Keep an eye out. But that's not what's going on here. Actually, it gets fleshed out as we keep going but even that word watch this is a watch that means to be spiritually alert what he was telling them was to pray make your heart steadfast let's not forget on the walk to the garden he told them you're going to fall away he's warned them about a spiritual danger they're under Now he's confessed his own struggle, but he tells to them, you now, this is the time. Remain and watch, consider your hearts, stay alert and watchful, temptation is coming. From our vantage point, they should have been hanging on every word. Tell us how to pray, tell us what to pray. And maybe they did pray for a while. We're told Jesus goes away in his prayer that's summarized for us in just a few lines. His prayer lasts an hour. He comes back and when he does, he finds them asleep. Verse 37, he came and found them sleeping. And he said, listen to this, he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? He calls Peter... Simon, and for those of you who know your Bibles, you know that Simon was his given name. Jesus gave him the name Peter. He gave him the name Peter, which means stone or rock. He gave him a new name for his new calling and his new position. And then this moment he says, waking him up, Simon. Perhaps signaling a a reverting back to the way he was before. What we see here is the reminder that steadfastness is not something that comes naturally to us. They were told to watch and pray, but they slept. Jesus gives them the instructions a second time. Verse 38, watch and pray that you may not fall into temptation. See how he's leading them a little further? First time, remain and watch. You should know why. This time, watch and pray so that you won't fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. Jesus knows that they're about to face the greatest challenge of their lives up to this point. He's going to be arrested, tried, and killed, and they are going to be under attack, not only physically, but spiritually. He knows that the next 72 hours will be times of question and doubt and despair. He will die, and they will be reeling. And so he gives them time to prepare. Watch, pray, that you may not enter temptation. The war is real. Your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. Church, maybe this is the hour for us. Maybe God's reminding you, this week will be hard. Nothing like this, but... Temptations, nonetheless. Prepare. Watch. Pray. We see here the omniscience of Christ. He knows they love him. He knows they want to please him, but he also knows their weakness. He knows they aren't mature enough yet to take a stand. He acknowledges the willingness of their spirit but the weakness of their flesh and we should hear this and recognize we are the same all of us i think stand in a position of saying i want to honor christ we've sung as much this morning but we all still have the pull of the flesh remember the way paul describes it in romans chapter 7 he says i i don't understand my own actions I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have a desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want to do. It's what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Paul understood that pool of the flesh. And you probably do too. And if we think about the warnings of Scripture, the deceitfulness of sin, the the acknowledgement there are some who prove that they were never of the faith, When we hear these kinds of things, it should lead us to want to heed the words of Christ when He says, Watch and pray. Take stock of your soul. It's a call to spiritual wakefulness. And it's a call that, in this case, the disciples struggled with in a very real way. Remember, He comes the first time and finds them asleep. He gives them further instruction and goes away again, only to return and find them sleeping again. And then a third time with the same result. And we can shake our heads and think, come on, guys, you can do this, right? You can do this. But if we're honest, we're all the same, aren't we? We come to church and we hear the call, watch and pray. And then what? We sleep through the week. Only to stumble in yet again. We're not always spiritually awake. Maybe we're better described as spiritually drowsy. Maybe you remember the way Christ spoke at the end of Mark 13, just a little while back for us. It's the end of that chapter where he's talking about the future, about his return. He says, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he comes and suddenly and finds you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. I love reading that verse in a church service. Stay awake. We're almost there. On this occasion, the disciples struggled physically and spiritually to stay awake. And it serves for us as a reminder of our struggle with steadfastness. We struggle to stay awake in the fight against sin. We struggle to stay awake in the fight against temptation. We struggle to stay awake in our pursuit of Christ. Can I give you good news? Your striving is not the means of your salvation. Because we're not very good at it, are we? Praise God our salvation isn't dependent on our striving. Praise God, our salvation is dependent on his steadfastness. This morning we've considered the weight of what lay ahead of Christ. We heard his prayer and recognized the significance. And we also know that he went forward. He submitted to the will of God, not only in word, but in action. After finding the disciples asleep a third time, Jesus says in verse 41, It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Wow. The Son of Man into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. That phrase, it is enough, not easily translated. Um, So lots of talk about what it means. Here's my take. Based on the context, I think this is Jesus confessing, it is time to go forward. He's cried out to the Father. He's expressed his heart. He knows it's time to do what must be done. It is enough. The hour has come. 33 years fulfilling all righteousness looking sinners in the face, knowing what lies ahead, and then in this final hour's feeling, the weight in a way he never had before, it seems. And then he says, looking at the weakness of his disciples, the one who need his sacrifice. It's enough. The hour has come. Get up. Not to run, not to hide, but to steadfastly walk towards the cross in obedience to the will of God. The writer of Hebrews says it this way. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus obeyed the will of the Father. Here we've seen over and over the weakness of the disciples, but we've also seen the steadfastness of Christ. And it's because of his steadfastness that you can be saved. He went to the cross. He shed his blood. He rose from the dead and he has said that all who will repent of their sins and believe will be saved not because you're strong enough but because he was faithful. You can be forgiven. You can have eternal life and for those of you who are in Christ, you can trust the steadfastness of Jesus. You are being saved And every promise he has made is true. He said he will never leave you and never forsake you. And he is steadfast. I also pray that his steadfastness would spur us on to greater steadfastness. That we would see his example of submission to the will of the Father. And do the same. Maybe you would leave this morning... Not only with the word steadfastness in your mind, but with the words watch and pray. Jesus is our example. Did he not do exactly what he told his disciples to do? As he went and cried out to the Father, he watched and prayed and then walked in steadfastness. And now he's calling us. Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and lay aside every sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the founder and perfecter, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and now is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus was steadfast, and now he calls us to follow him in steadfastness. Praise God, he's the one that gives us the power. I'll end with a prayer that Paul prayed for the Thessalonians. It's short. But consider this prayer prayed by Paul. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ.